We tend to be obsessed in the drug world with drug use. That shouldn't be the obsession. The obsession should be reducing drug harms. And that's what harm reduction is all about. I think it's a safer alternative. I think it's a harm minimization. It's like methadone to heroin addicts. It's just an alternative. It's not great, but it's a bit better. I work very much in the world of harm reduction, and I certainly will never apologise for keeping people's children alive and well. I don't think that I have any real um, control to, to not. I think if I wasn't vaping, I would end up smoking again. I started vaping and putting the liquid with the carrier liquid and it did the trick for me because I still had my hand-mouth coordination thing going. I was still getting the nicotine, so it was a comfortable transition for me because the only thing that changed was the fact I wasn't getting tar and smoking a physical cigarette anymore. I would hate to see the focus on what is being labelled a youth epidemic as a way of not allowing people who really should have this as an option in their treatment blocked. I just find that really sad and, and, and concerning that they can at any time go and get a pack of cigarettes. It's all about relativities. It's not really whether vaping is completely harmless or not. It's whether vaping is much lower risk than smoking. Welcome to Chasing Clouds, a Quo podcast series produced in collaboration with the Prince of Wales Hospital Foundation and the Head and Neck Cancer Foundation. I'm Ali, Editor-in-Chief at the Quo and your host for this series. Chasing Clouds is an evidence-based exploration into the social and public health impact of vaping and e-cigarettes in contemporary Australia. We draw upon the expertise of young people, doctors, educators, vapers, academics, and frontline community organisations to bring to light what we need to do moving forward. What is harm reduction? What are the arguments for using e-cigarettes as a form of harm reduction for long-term smokers who just can't quit? What does the research say about the efficacy of e-cigarettes as a smoking cessation tool? These are some of the questions we will be asking in this episode. We aim to remain neutral because we're not funded by the vaping industry or big tobacco. Here's Sam Parsons, AKA the Vaping Bogan, on how vaping helped him quit traditional cigarettes and stay away from them for good. Yeah, I was smoking for about 10 years. I think I first started smoking when I was about 14. Um, and by the time I was 16, I was properly addicted and, and smoking regularly. And then um, that continued till I was sort of 25, I think, 24, 25. Um, and yeah, I was a pretty heavy smoker. Didn't have any, tried all the patches, the gum, you know, went back to, to smoking every time. And so I was just sort of um, looking for a way to really kind of replace or, or cut cut smoking out of my life that was actually going to be effective and then found on the internet um, vaping. <laughs> 
I think if I wasn't vaping, I would end up smoking again. There's just too many things that um, are a trigger for me, you know, whether it's having a beer at the pub, having a coffee in the morning, um, after after dinner. I think that um, if, if I didn't have vaping, it would be very hard for me to not go back to smoking again. Dr. Alex Wodak is the former director of the Alcohol and Drug Service at St. Vincent's Hospital and a world leader in drug and alcohol-related harm reduction strategies. He helped establish the first needle syringe program and the first supervised methadone injecting centre in Australia. Dr. Wodak on what harm reduction is all about and how he thinks it relates to tobacco control. It's a simple concept, but it's difficult to explain. And uh, if we look around the world, we can see harm reductions everywhere, and we all do it all the time. The essence of it is that you, you, you're worried about a particular risk behavior, and you try to reduce that risk behavior, and you try to reduce it as much as you can by reducing the supply of that good or service. Um, you try and reduce the demand for that good and service as well. And then you realize that you can't reduce the use of that substance or that behavior anymore. So then you switch to harm reduction and you try and reduce the damage that that behavior does. Road safety is a very good example of harm reduction because we see it everywhere. And we see, because there's no debate about um, pleasure, we see harm reduction in road safety adopted almost always without much of a fight. And harm reduction typically involves the person with the risk behavior in the front and center of efforts to reduce the damage from that drug. So I learned very early on in my work in HIV uh, control among and from people who inject drugs that I had to work very closely with people who injected drugs. Here I was, a middle-class male doctor, and so I started going to meetings with people who injected drugs. And I learned a lot from them, not by talking to them, but by listening to them. And that's what's missing in this whole debate about tobacco harm reduction. The tobacco control people, they really dislike uh, smokers and vapors and they don't listen to them. I listen to them. I learn a lot from them. And I sadly realize there's a lot about smoking, vaping that I'll never understand. But they understand it and that's what matters and they can tell me what I need to know. Dr. Wodak explains the relationship between smoking, vaping, and health inequality. To understand vaping, you have to begin at the beginning, which is with smoking. And smoking is both in Australia and internationally uh, the biggest public health problem. And in most parts of the world, that's still the case. Of course, the most urgent public health problem at the moment is COVID, but there was a time before COVID and Let's hope there'll soon be a time after COVID. And once again, then, we'll see tobacco smoking as the number one public health issue. It's responsible for 21,000 deaths a year in Australia. That's more deaths than from alcohol, plus prescription drugs, plus illicit drugs, plus suicide, plus road crash deaths, plus HIV. 
it's a very major important cause of deaths and disease. And it's also because of the way smoking is distributed in the Australian population. It's also a very important issue for health inequalities and social and economic inequalities. And that's because <clears throat> the lowest 20% of the population in terms of income in Australia <clears throat> are twice as likely to smoke as people from the highest income. And that means they have a disproportionate share of smoking related uh, deaths and diseases. And this is not just about low income, it's also about people who are disadvantaged in other ways. First Nation people, um, people with severe alcohol and drug problems, people with severe mental health problems, homeless people, all these kinds of groups, as well as the low income groups, have very high rates of smoking and tend to smoke more cigarettes per day. So they have uh, big problems in terms of smoking related deaths and disease. And also because cigarettes in Australia are so highly taxed, we've got the most expensive cigarettes in the world at the moment in Australia, because so many low income people smoke and smoke heavily, it's a big drain on their finances. So somebody in Australia smoking 20 cigarettes a day, that's more than the average, spends $12,500 a year on cigarettes. Somebody who uh, vapes spends less than $2,000 a year on vaping. Using vaping as a smoking cessation tool is a fiercely contested topic. There are currently no TGA-approved nicotine vaping products in Australia, and according to the Australian Medical Association, the AMA, a lack of evidence on their efficacy or safety means they should only be used as a last resort. Doctors in Australia can prescribe nicotine for vaping, but the AMA estimates that only one in 10 currently do so. Dr. Colin Mendelson of the Australian Tobacco Harm Reduction Association considers vaping a potential lifesaver for people who can't quit smoking. Vaping uh, now has very clear evidence that it's an effective quitting aid. So the gold standard for whether a treatment works is a Cochrane review, which pools the results of the available randomised controlled trials. And the Cochrane review for vaping found that it was 70% more effective than nicotine replacement therapy. Some smokers use vaping as a short-term quitting aid. They'll stop smoking and then stop vaping, but others will continue to vape to avoid relapse to smoking. If smokers switch to vaping uh, as an alternative, uh, there are dramatic health benefits. So for the people who can't quit, it's, it's, a, it's a potentially a lifesaver. Associate Professor Becky Freeman is more sceptical. When you look at the evidence for whether e-cigarettes help people to quit, it's quite weak. There are only a small number of clinical trials that have been done to a high enough standard that have shown that people who use nicotine-containing e-cigarettes, when in combination with psychological support, you know, it's not just like, oh, buying an e-cigarette from 7-Eleven and going off and using it on your own. But in these studies, you usually have a quit smoking counselor, you know, you are being called back and monitored, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, 
so and those even those studies themselves are not particularly promising it's not a silver bullet it's not like 90 percent of the people who try an e-cigarette go on to quit i absolutely complete sympathy for people who have struggled to quit and have tried e-cigarettes and find that they work for them i'm not discounting that at all but we can't take you know small examples or small numbers of people who have had that experience and translate that into public health policy. We have to have really clear evidence of safety and efficacy. And you have to also consider the other side. You can't just look at smoking cessation and isolation. We have to consider things like youth uptake. And we also have to consider things like dual use. So do e-cigarettes keep people in smoking? A lot of people who use e-cigarettes continue to smoke. And I'm concerned that they become weekend smokers or social smokers and use e-cigarettes, you know, maybe during the week. And we know that social smoking is not, is anything but social. You are just as, you know, you will suffer from the health consequences of that as well. Um, it's about the long-term use of these, of, of tobacco products. So I'm really concerned about that. And we can't think about isolated um, cessation and isolation. We've got to think it in terms of broader health. If you are enjoying Chasing Clouds, please support our unique approach to investigative journalism by rating and reviewing this podcast. Dr. Wodak sees vaping as a tool for tobacco harm reduction that should not and cannot be discounted. It's all about relativities. It's not really whether vaping is completely harmless or not. It's whether vaping is much lower risk than smoking. And I mentioned that 68 million people around the world are now vaping in dozens of countries. Uh, There are thousands of papers published each year on uh, looking at vaping. Uh, And the evidence is that it is clearly much safer. And there are many... uh, prestigious individuals and organizations that have come to that conclusion. If we compare smokers and vapors, we see that the biomarkers are much more plentiful in the blood urine of cigarette smokers compared to vapors. Uh, So there are more chemicals, higher concentration, more toxins in the biological fluids of smokers compared to vapors. And then if we look at um, the physiological measurements and symptoms in um, smokers compared to people who only vape and have stopped smoking a while ago, uh, we see that there are big improvements in the vapors. They have fewer symptoms. For example, can you run upstairs? Yes, I can now run upstairs. I couldn't do that before. That's the sort of thing we hear vapors say. Uh, And also uh, when we look at biological measurements, uh, for example, measurements of the ability to breathe out rapidly within one second, um, that's depressed in smokers and improves in vapors. So there are many reasons for thinking that Uh, vaping is not zero risk, but it's much lower risk than smoking. Dr. Wodak points to Sweden as a proof of concept for tobacco harm reduction. It's also very important to know that we have what's called proof of concept of tobacco harm reduction. 
And that is that in Sweden, men don't like smoking very much, but they love taking tobacco in a form that they call snus. And snus is a moist oral tobacco that's been pasteurized, and that's important. And it's placed in something that looks a bit like a tea bag. And the Swedish men put this, um, this pod of snus uh, in between their upper lip and their teeth. And they leave it there for 20 minutes or so. And the nicotine gets absorbed uh, through the lining of the mouth. Um, and that replaces cigarettes, cigarette smoking. So that product, snus, has been around for no one knows exactly, but um, probably about 200 years. It's been very well studied and it's banned in every other European Union country apart from Sweden. And if we compare Swedish men with men from all other EU countries, that's 31 countries, we find that the Swedish men have the lowest rates of smoking, smoking-related diseases, and smoking-related deaths by a large margin. Uh, and there's been an intensive study of the direct harm from snus itself. And there's a debate about whether the harm is at microscopic levels or is completely zero. But whatever it is, it's very low. Ex-smoker Rosie believes that making the transition from vaping to smoking both improved her health and saved her money. So I did start vaping to as, a, as an aid to give up smoking. I um, had tried patches before, but I'm allergic to those. I used to come out in welts and um, the, the gum didn't appeal to me. So I thought this might be a good opportunity uh, to try to give up smoking because I'd always wanted to give up smoking. So basically I imported a, um, a few vials of nicotine liquid from America. I purchased uh, like a pencil vaping tool and, um, and I had it sort of all sitting there ready to go when I chose my time. And just randomly one day I finished a packet of cigarettes and I thought, well, I've got everything, let's just give it a crack. I started vaping and putting the liquid with the carrier liquid and it did the trick for me because I still had my hand-mouth coordination thing going I was still getting the nicotine so it was a comfortable transition for me because the only thing that changed was the fact I wasn't getting tar and smoking a physical cigarette anymore but it took a little bit of adjusting not much but um, yeah it worked, it worked for me I never had a cigarette ever since and that was six years ago or over six years ago I found that I could vape without the coughing. I um, I was starting to suffer like as a smoker's cough, I guess, for want of a better name. And this over time um, was alleviated through the vaping as well. I, I wasn't getting the agitations um, for, for a cough. So the, the coughing went. Um, I did still have cravings, but the vaping um, managed to alleviate those as well I mean some days were harder than others and sometimes I just seemed like I was constantly sucking on this vaping thing but um, it managed to get me through so um, I found yeah so physiologically the um, benefits were 
we're, we're better. I remember when I started vaping, I downloaded this app, which you plugged in all your quit dates and all of that sort of stuff and the price of a packet of cigarettes. And um, I was very surprised to see how quickly um, it built up and how much money I was actually spending. It was an impetus to keep going because the um, the price of maintaining vaping was far less than the price of, of smoking. I don't know if it's better, I don't know if it's worse, but certainly if it helps me give up smoking and the detrimental part of smoking, as we've all been told, is tar, um, if it helps me not have the tar in my body and leads to me um, giving up smoking, well, you know, then it was worth taking the risk. Dr Wodak on why it's critical for former smokers like Rosie to have access to tobacco harm reduction. Well, it's clearly very important that we get the people who really need tobacco harm reduction to have harm reduction readily accessible. And the people who really need it are middle-aged and older smokers. And the reason they are in priority number one is because if they don't quit soon, they're at risk of getting the consequences of smoking, which is cancers, uh, diseases of the heart and cardiovascular system, and uh, airways problems, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. And it's that group where the quit rate in Australia is very low. We've got the smoking rate down to very low levels among young people, um, and that's very important. <laughs> Further reducing the smoking rate in young people while it's desirable, while it's welcome, the rewards aren't going to be that great. For a start, the smoking rates are already low. Secondly, any further reduction in smoking rates in young people is only going to produce a modest reduction in the rates of cancer, heart disease uh, and lung disease. And also that reduction is only going to be evident in 20, 30 years time. So they're, say, 15 now, uh, they'll start running into trouble in their 40s and 50s. Whereas the people who are now in their 40s and 50s, if we can get tobacco harm reduction to them and get them to take it up in large numbers, we'll see a substantial reduction in deaths and disease quite quickly. So that's the challenge, making harm reduction readily available and attractive to older people, making it uh, hard to get and less attractive to young people. Dr Wodak reminds us that it is developing countries and low SES communities that bear the brunt of tobacco-related deaths. According to him, they are the ones who would benefit most from tobacco harm reduction. One of the things we have to pay attention to is the distribution between of tobacco use between high-income and low-income people, and also between high-income and lower-income countries. So uh, 80% of the tobacco use around the world is now in low- and middle-income countries, countries like China and India. China is the heaviest consumer of tobacco products, and India is second. Um, Indonesia is third. And this is really the future of tobacco harm reduction. Uh, it doesn't help those countries struggling to escape from poverty 
and especially it doesn't help the women when we could have these almost magical innovations um, that would release, improve their health, reduce their spending and improve those countries immeasurably. Professor Rajeshwar Sharan is a molecular biologist and biochemist working in northeast India. He has 30 years of research experience, specialising in oral tobacco consumption. According to the Global Adult Tobacco Survey 2 data from 2017, there are almost 300 million tobacco users in India, and 200 million of those consume oral tobacco products. Professor Sharan highlights the gendered dimension of oral tobacco use and why India needs to embrace tobacco harm reduction. More of women uh, indulge into smokeless tobacco. And if they, I look at this uh, breakdown, then um, it, it's, it's almost 12.8% adult women are using smokeless form of tobacco uh, compared to 2% uh, women who were using combustible tobacco. It's pretty bad. So the oral cavity cancer in multiple forms is, is the biggest problem in India in terms of those who use smokeless tobacco in any form. Women and children and the disadvantaged sections of the society are the worst affected because they get least help from any agency, including the health agencies. It's unfortunate that somehow in the domain of tobacco, there's a huge resistance to harm minimization by all uh, policy makers. And unfortunately, there is a huge uh, illiteracy even amongst professionals. We published a study where we, I, I looked at all healthcare professionals only looking at their knowledge, attitude, practice, etc., towards tobacco cessation. And I was aghast. And that's an Indian study that was conducted last year or published last year. I mean, two-thirds, more than two-thirds of uh, clinicians were unaware that there is any carcinogens present and they all assumed and they knew that nicotine is the only carcinogen. Now, nicotine is not a carcinogen that we know, all those who uh, work and uh, know about it. It's an addictive substance. But they had no idea of uh, uh, tobacco specific nitrosamines and uh, other carcinogens that are actually present in tobacco. So there is a huge problem there. There is a illiteracy on, on, on this real terms. And, and therefore, they don't somehow think of harm minimization in this domain. While the same doctors practice all kinds of harm minimization in all other medical practices. So if, if there is a high blood pressure, they say reduce on salt. If you are diabetic, reduce on, on uh, you know, your sugar and so on. Everything is practiced and the whole medical science works on harm minimization. As, as I think all of us know. But unfortunately, there are barriers of knowledge, there are policy barriers of on practicing this in the domain of tobacco in India. Belinda Volkov is an alcohol and other drugs counsellor with over 20 years of experience. 
She works on the ground with young people aged 12 to 25 at the Sydney Drug Education and Counselling Centre. Belinda on why embracing harm reduction is important for empowering her clients and improving outcomes. In terms of harm reduction, we will always offer harm reduction mechanisms to anyone who has readiness for change. So firstly, it's very important for us to remember too that we don't do treatment at people and good luck to people who do, okay? So what, what they do is we need willing participants. We have young people that come in that aren't, don't even have readiness for change, okay? Now, so, so do a lot of people around um, long-term drug use. And, and so when they are like that, we will try and go, well, would you even be open to, to being healthier and alive and reducing harm? Because if we can reduce harm, that's better, right? And we do that. And you see the way they do that with alcohol and get, don't get me started on the difference between the alcohol industry. So what happens is, is that when young people are nicotine dependent, traditionally, we would talk to them about what they could do about that. And it's always been NRT, okay, nicotine replacement therapy. So in relation to vaping at the moment, I mean, am I, am I going to be having a whole lot of young people under the age of 18, and let's put some ages around this, or even under, certainly not under 16, but from 16 up, would, would we have opportunities for young people to have that harm reduction method discussed in the context of other harm reduction methods? Of course. Do we feel worried about having those discussions at the moment as clinicians? Yep. Why do we feel worried? because uh, people are really quite accusatory and angry. Does that remind me of the other fights that we've had in harm reduction in the past? Yes. Does it feel the same <laughs> as the other fights we've had around trying to incorporate pharmacotherapy for people? Yes. And I think one of the things that's, that's, that's missing here is in my extensive experience, if there was a way to give somebody just an alternative and that was it, then, then fine. This is another alternative that adds to the others. Now, if we're in the UK, we might be having very different discussions. Mm. In, in our country, at the moment, as clinicians, we're trying to ascertain what is the best thing for our clients. It comes back to what is the best thing for them. What is the least path of resistance? If they are even willing to make changes in behaviour, why would we not do that? You know, when young people are doing things, if they're reducing harm in any way, we want to encourage and empower them to look at their health. If they're saying to me, "I, I, I can't, I'm going to still use, but I, but I, but I want to, I don't want to do as much harm to myself," I, I'd love people to answer that for me as well. And, and I'm not, you know, and that's where harm reduction is harm reduction. We have a variety of things. This has been approved through prescription only. And therefore, no one should be attacked for trying to make changes. I also have a young person, by the way, who was very distressed um, at her friends shaming her because her father has switched to vaping. For me as a clinician, I'm, I'm gonna look at the literature and not get caught up in rhetoric because we don't have time for that. We truly don't have time for that. So I'm only hopeful that we can develop some maturity as a nation to have this discussion. Dr. Alex Wodak on what he thinks tobacco harm reduction could achieve and what it's up against. It's important for us to realise that vaping really is an industry that was invented by ex-smokers 
not by big tobacco, by ex-smokers. It's been a very important revolution. And this is a real breakthrough because the way things are going at the moment, we can anticipate 1 billion deaths from smoking by the end of this century. This is equivalent to the breakthrough of vaccines in public health, the advent of tobacco harm reduction. And we've got about 1.1 billion people smoking around the world, and they account for those 8 million deaths every year. So just imagine if we um, could transform that whole market so that people who want to get off their face with nicotine could still do that. Uh, and there'd be presumably some deaths and some disease, but nowhere on the scale of 8 million deaths a year, 1 billion deaths between now and the end of the century. This is not about trying to end the tobacco industry. This is trying to end uh, smoking-related deaths and diseases. Every new drug harm reduction intervention has been a ferocious battle in Australia and around the world. Nobody has caved in uh, easily in authority. The, the resistance didn't stop when it was clear that needle syringe programs were effective and safe and cost-effective. Uh, ditto for methadone treatment. There is still incredible resistance to all of those things. And we can expect that there'll still be resistance to vaping, heated uh, tobacco products and all the other things for many years to come. This is one of those battles that's really about moral justice. Um, and one of these days uh, we'll get there, but it'll require a lot of fighting over a long period of time, but we will get there, definitely. The Talking About Tobacco Use program through the National Centre of Indigenous Excellence works with elders, youth, school and workplaces and measures shifts in participants' attitudes, behaviours and understanding of tobacco use. In episode four, we gain a unique insight into this program by talking to the young people who run these workshops and learn about how they are adapting to the challenges faced by Sydney's extended COVID lockdown. 